We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. As usual, stay tuned to the end of the interview where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes, and all of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Now, on to my guest for today, Brian Clayton, CEO and co-founder of GreenPal an app that connects homeowners with lawn care specialists. Brian has been in the lawn care business since he was a kid mowing lawns for his neighbors. He eventually grew his lawn mowing business into a successful landscaping company that he eventually sold, a rarity for the industry. His next venture was to figure out how to harness tech to help both service providers and their customers. As someone experienced in the field, he understands the challenges providers face from finding customers to getting paid, but starting a tech company was new to him. He started by focusing on building a roster of service providers and then went about finding customers to use the app. With some trial and error and lots of feedback, GreenPal has grown over the last 11 years to become recognized as the quote-unquote Uber for lawn care and runs thousands of transactions daily. While Brian understands lawn care business, founding the tech company was definitely out of his comfort zone. In this episode, he explains how he had to go back to kindergarten and realize there was a lot he still didn't know. One critical action Brian and his co-founders took was asking for feedback on their app when they first developed it so they would know how to tweak it and change it. They also had to work on themselves and level up alongside learning how to build a company. Now, let's get better together. Brian Clayton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. It's good to be here. Yeah, thank you. It's been a hot minute 
for us trying to get this all together. <laughs> you made it happen, finally. It finally happened, you know. Um, you're the co-founder and CEO of GreenPal out of Nashville, Tennessee. And we were just talking a little bit before the show how much I love Nashville. Uh, my late wife, Jane, loved Nashville. We'd go to Memphis all the time and Nashville. So a uh, special place in my heart uh, for Nashville. Um, and, you know, GreenPal is such an interesting business basically helping people get their lawns mowed, <laughs> which right. I'm oversimplifying it. I know I'm a knucklehead. Please like, don't, 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 don't judge. But uh, I find it really fascinating because um, these are one of those sort of, again, we'll talk a little bit more about it. Kind of, I don't know if it's a two-sided marketplace, but something to like help people with this task that if you are in the South or anywhere where you've got big lawns and there's, it's just, have to do it. It's kind of like in the winter when you got to get your snow removed. I mean, there's just these things you fundamentally have to do if you can't do it yourself. So we'll love to dig into that because I always find these sort of blue collar work ethic type places. You know, I think you even mentioned in your website, like these are some of the hardest working people in the world. And I can imagine because 90 degrees, 90% humidity mowing a lawn. Yeah. Yeah. You're a lot <laughs> tougher than me. <laughs> it's, a, it's an honest way to make a living. That's for sure. 100%. 100%. But uh, before we get into all that, as I always like to say, why don't you tell us how you got to do what you're doing today? Yeah. So thanks for that intro. That's That was great. Yeah. So currently I'm CEO, co-founder of GreenPal, which is kind of like the Uber for lawn mowing services. If you are a, you, a homeowner, rent a house, rather than calling around, you just download GreenPal pop your address in and somebody comes out and takes care of this grass cutting for you. GreenPal is a 10-year, now 11-year overnight success. My co-founders and I have, have been at this project for over a decade, building the what's now the, nation, the nation's largest network of lawn care services that you can hire from your smartphone. And so in the first few years, it was it was kind of a slow grind getting it going, getting the marketplace going, just through trial and error and experimentation, figuring out what worked, what didn't. But we finally got to where you know, we have several hundred thousand people using the app to get this chore done and, and around 40,000 contractors using it to run their lawn mowing business. And how did I get here? How did I decide one day I wanted to build a mobile app for lawn care services? Actually, my first business was a grass cutting company. I, I started mowing grass in high school as a way to make extra cash and just kind of got bit by the entrepreneurial bug at a young age and stuck with that lawn mowing business all through high school, all through college. And over a 15-year period of time, ended up building one of the larger landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee where I live, eventually getting that business over eight figures in revenue. And then in 2013, it was acquired. It was uh, acquired by a national company in, in the industry which doesn't happen very often in, in the landscaping business, but I was able to navigate that and fortunate to get that deal done. And after that, I kind of went through a, an existential crisis, I guess you could say, like, who am I? What now? What do I do with my life? You know, I was only 33 at the time. And, and so I decided, well, you know, I, I, I see these guys out in Silicon Valley building these tech companies and, and, and making their mark on the world doing it. Why can't I do that? And uh, I thought I was kind of, it was kind of naivete as an asset. I was like, how hard could it be? And I recruited two co-founders and none of us knew how to code. None of us knew how to build software. None of us knew the first thing about technology, but we didn't let that stop us. We just got in the game and, and uh, started figuring it out. 
and little by little taught ourselves how to build software and and over two or three year time ended up getting something that actually worked into the marketplace and and then now over 10 years time uh, something that's actually growing and and doing well yeah overnight success in 10 years <laughs> so many times no one actually tells anyone about that they look at silicon well, valley and you know to your point man it's a good thing nobody told me because <laughs> Because if I had known it was going to take 10 years to, you know, essentially eight or nine years to get the profitability, I'd have never done it. And uh, I think it's good that we have a little bit of that naivete in the early days of starting a business. Because if somebody actually sat you down and told you how hard it was going to be, how many sleepless nights you're going to have and how tough it's going to be financially and all the challenges you're going to face, no, no rational person would do it. So I think it's a good thing. I think that naivete is a good thing. Um, the I think what you know what separates the folks, the entrepreneurs that make it and don't, are the ones that don't give up once they once they realize how hard it's going to be. Once they uncover how difficult it's going to be, you know, like pushing on a string for for several years. Um, the ones that don't give up and try to learn from the things that aren't working and try to figure out something that does work. Those, those are the ones that actually create something valuable. Yeah, I mean the average kind of startup life cycle here and even in Silicon Valley, you know, it's 7 to 10 years before it even gets to the point where it's actually a success, quote unquote, overnight success and yeah, I mean I can't tell you how many times I've heard or been a part of or talking to founders where they're like, "Yep, yeah, we uh yesterday we almost ran out of money." <laughs> so uh yeah, you know, sadly that- those those stories are going to be more and more, more and more, you know, as, as the capital markets have kind of gotten tighter and, and uh, you know, it, it, even if you see these things from the outside looking in and they look like overnight successes, they never are. Usually, you know, it was uh, the founder was working on something else that was similar that failed before they started that thing that was a rocket ship and they used all the learnings from the thing that didn't work and plowed them into the thing that did work. So it actually wasn't two years. It was like 10 because they, they spent five or, or six or seven or eight years on this other thing that didn't work. Usually it's, it's, it's a decade um, that, that, that you're observing from the outside. And, and, and uh, that's one thing that, you know, was challenging for us. We had to, we had to work on ourselves and become technology entrepreneurs as we were working on the business and that's one of the cool things about starting a business is that you are going to level up. You're going to grow alongside of it and you're going to become a totally different person uh, as the business grows. And that's, you know, looking back 20 something years of, of now two businesses, that's every three or four years I've evolved into a whole new person. That's one of the fun things about running your own business is that it, you level up alongside the business as part of the journey. Oh, totally. Yeah. I like, I like that you brought up the level up because um, a lot of people think, there's no kind of evolution of who you are and what you what you do and what you know. And the I think it's the crucible of entrepreneurship. And I think a crucible is probably the good word. Right. It's a lot or of, you don't have the title. A lot of folks are like, oh, I'm not an engineer. Therefore, I can't start a tech company or I'm not a product person. Therefore, I can't design a mobile app or I'm not a designer. Therefore, I can't design this product. And the cool thing about, you know, founding a tech company or, or even starting a small traditional business, you don't have to have permission from anybody. If you don't have these titles, it doesn't matter. You can go and especially these days, learn anything that you got to learn to get in the game. 
And that's one of the, the one of the really coolest things about entrepreneur, entrepreneurship these days. It wasn't like this in the early nine, late nineties when I got started, but these days, you know, YouTube University, oh, yeah. you can learn anything you gotta learn to, to, to get done what you gotta get done. It's crazy. I yeah, it's so bizarre because you know, the whole no code, low code movement, the whole really, I think products democratized. I mean, right. I, I keep on saying this and everyone's like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, look, you can build anything. I mean, and I'm not joking when I say that it's really the, the marketing and the getting people to buy it and pay attention to that's it the hard part is, is, is now the hard part. So right. it's sort of come in full circle where the marketing folks, the storytellers of the world, the business storytellers, which I always say the best story wins is, um, really important because since everything is democratized and since there's so much noise in the world, it's all about getting people to pay attention. And that's right. People don't want to pay attention. <laughs> it's so true. Uh, it, there's a couple of uh, maxims. There's a guy, a uh, guy followed David Sachs, who was one of the first product guys at PayPal. And, and he said, it's not enough to innovate on product. You also have to innovate on growth and distribution. And it's almost like more than 50-50. You know, whatever innovation you're bringing to the marketplace by way of a new product that solves a problem in a new way is literally half or less of the battle. The other half is, how am I going to get this in the hands of people to use it? How am I going to get the word out? How am I going to distribute it? And, uh, and you know, okay, well, I'll just buy Facebook ads or Google ads or whatever. And then, no, that's not the answer. That's a fast way to go broke. You have to have some kind of innovation of how this thing is going to spread. How is it going to get into the hands of people that need it? And that's, in a weird way, the, the harder part of the equation. And, uh, this, and it's kind of funny. Just last week, I was, I was on Instagram and I saw some weird, I saw, saw an interview with T.I., the, the rapper. And he said, he said, you know, I can't walk down the street and have people come up to me and say, hey, I want to do a, a freestyle in front of you. I want to rap in front of you so you'll sign me. And he said, what I want to tell them is I don't care how good you rap. All I care about is I want to see your TikTok, your Instagram, your Facebook, your Twitter. How many people are care about what music you're putting out there? And can you get 20,000, 10,000 people to download whatever on Spotify? And then you do that. Then I come find you. And that simple thing in the music industry is also true in, in, in entrepreneurship. It doesn't matter how good your, your, your freestyle is. It doesn't matter how good your product is. That's almost table stakes. What matters is, is how many people downloaded your, your new single on Spotify how many people are liking your stuff on, on Instagram or how many people are trying your crappy product to solve this problem because their pain is so much that they want to use a subpar product to solve it. That's the harder part that, that gets glossed over. Yeah, no, I agree. I totally agree. I mean, it's funny because, you know, I used to be an engineer. I mean, you're, you're never, you never stop being an engineer, just so you know. <laughs> I went to the dark side of marketing, right? But I just... I mean, to just see, like, it's just insane. And you're right. It's not the talent. Am I talented? It's can I get the distribution? Can I get people to notice me? And what unique and novel ways am I, am I doing that? And, and to your point about sort of like it's 50-50, I mean, I, I tell people all the time, half the battle's building it. The other half is getting people to pay attention to it. That's right. If you spent three years building it, you're going to spend at least three years promoting it, 
Mark, you, I don't think you can say it's successful or not successful until you spent the same amount of time in development as promotion marketing, because you just don't know what you don't know. I mean, and, and it, I can, when I t- ask, you know, tell clients, you know, cause now I work for, um, a B2B, you know, consulting company, we go, go to market strategy, all that sort of stuff. I just, it's just funny because they're all like, well, tell me the, tell me the thing to do. Like, and I'm like, well, I, these are the sort of the, 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 the menu of things, but we right. don't really know until we're in. Right. And, exactly. and, and like moving around. Cause like, I need feedback. Like I need to, to get the pressure back. Oh, that's not working. So I can only give you the general framework and I can give you kind of the overview, the strategy is this and what tactics are going to work. Hey, you know, no that's one right. I think can tell you that until you're in market doing stuff. That experimentation process you just described is humbling. Nobody yeah. wants to do it because it's a lot of small things that you're doing over and over again, trying to figure out what works. It's kind of like you're, fi- you're, you're, you're climbing a mountain and like the mountain has got a bunch of fog over it and, and you don't know how high the mountain is. You don't know what way to go because you can only see like two or three feet in front of you. And you just have to keep going two or three feet at a time to figure out how to climb the mountain. You don't know the plan. You don't know how long it's going to take you to get to the mountaintop. And, and one of my favorite quotes from Paul Graham, the, the, the guy that started Y Combinator, he's, he says, action produces information. And just those three words, action produces information. And so it's like you try this. It didn't work. It did work. Now you have information to figure out how to, how to work on top of that and just keep doing that and not giving up. And when I started GreenPal, it was humbling as hell because you know, I had this landscaping business that had 150 employees was doing like a $10 million a year in revenue. I, I sold it, which doesn't happen very often in that industry. So here I am, I'm feeling like I know everything there is to know about business. And, and now I'm going to start this tech company, which is going to be a breeze because it's not going to have all of these things that made the landscaping business so hard. And boy, I didn't know what I didn't know. Very, very humbling. I had to go backwards to, 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 to kindergarten and, and talk to people again and beg them to use my crappy app for a $27 lawn mowing. And if they tried it, I would just, I would beg them to meet with me. And so I could, I could talk to them and figure out what it did that they liked and where we let them down and, and using those interviews and using that feedback is what informed getting to the next level of the game. And I got to know the inside of every Starbucks in, in, in Nashville, Tennessee, you know, meeting with, with, with early users and and it was that was what we had to do at that time to produce the information to understand, OK, well, this is how we can do a scalable uh, acquisition strategy. And these are the things we need to focus what lim- limited developer resources we have to fix on this thing. And it's humbling and it's not fun and nobody wants to do it. And, and it's the ones that, that are willing to grind that out, that, that that progress to the next level of the game. Yeah, I mean, I, I always talk about it as the blue collar work ethic. And to me, that's sort of, you know, when I was a kid, my first job was a paper route. I think I don't know. You know, then I worked at McDonald's and then my dad was loved building stuff around the house. So it was like Saturday morning at 8 a.m. If we weren't playing sports, we were sawing wood and digging ditches. And yeah. this suburbs, right? This isn't, we're not even on a farm. He was the farm boy from Kansas that how he got, you know, long story. But, uh, I think you're right. It's the blue collar work ethic that I think is sorely missing in the world. Like you cannot automate your way or tech your way out of working hard. No. Um, 
it's just not going to happen. I mean, the chat GPT stuff you hear about now, you know, you know, open AI took eight years to get to where it is today. And to your point about the product, it was the chat part of open AI. That's what exploded, not open AI. It, right. 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 Distribute, you know, and that was seven, eight years in the making. Like these guys ground hard, grinding hard. And you just got to, again, I just love that frame because the same exact ethic work ethic you did to build GreenPal is the same exact work ethic they did to build OpenAI. Same principles. And, and uh, it's like everybody wants, wants the microwave version of, of how to get through all this stuff. And, and unfortunately, I don't know any fast way to shortcut the process. And uh, there was a, one of the best angel investors of all time was a, was a guy named Chris Saka. He, he's retired uh, in the last couple of years. But he he had a maximum. He said he only invested in entrepreneurs that had crappy jobs, people that at one point worked as a as a server or a waitress or a barista or a construction job or a plant or something. Because he knew that 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 kind of blue collar ethos at some point or another was going to be required to to grind out some of the harder parts of the journey. And uh, it's it's weird, man. It's like it doesn't matter how smart you are. You know, you know, it, you know, like the founders of DoorDash, they did deliveries. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to drive around all over the Bay Area, you know, delivering Chinese food to figure out how you're going to build the product, you know? And most, you know, Ivy League level educated folks are not, you know, willing to, to, do, to do that because it feels like a step backwards. Not fun. No, <laughs> but I mean, essential. I like to think yeah. the, the ones that don't do that, okay, some of them get lucky. Like agreed, like I will, I will capitulate to that. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes, but I think the probability goes up significantly. To your point, when you've done service jobs, when you've had to, I mean, I worked at McDonald's, right, which was a very humbling experience because you know it's like sixteen, and I'm like, this is hard. It's <laughs> not intellectually hard. Like there is some part of that, but what a grind. And then I worked yeah. at a drugstore, like and re, you know retail drugstore where. You know, I remember like I'm working my way through high school and college and I'm just thinking, I got to get a degree because this is really hard. I don't yeah. think I could do this. I want to, you know, sit at a desk and code or create computer chips or whatever. But that's one of those weird dichotomies, yeah. one, of those weird, one of those weird paradoxes in, in, in life and business. If you do things that are easy, business is going to be hard. If you do things that are hard, business is going to be easy. And, you know, the the easy thing is to sit behind the laptop and code for a year and do it on all these assumptions that that you have in your head. The hard thing is to sit down at somebody's coffee table and 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 let them tell you everywhere your baby is ugly, yeah. where your product sucks. And then and then take that feedback, which is painful and sucks, it's not fun. And then and then apply that to how you're making the product better. That's the hard thing. But if you do the hard thing, the rest of the journey is going to be easier. It's a strange thing. And, and I felt the same thing, you know, 20 years ago, mowing grass and getting home and my back hurt and, you know, calluses on my hands. I didn't want, I was like, this is hard. I don't want to do this. And so I, you know, that was my motivation. That's what the universe was giving me to, to level up and learn how to recruit a team and manage and put together systems and processes to build a, a bigger operation. And so it's, it's good that it's hard. It's good that it sucks. Yeah. I mean, you know, 
used to do all these endurance events and they'd always just say, embrace the suck. Right. Yeah. And it was funny because it's all, you know, based on this whole special operations type cadre model or whatever. But what was really funny is that the people that you couldn't tell who was going to quit. Right. I mean, you could sort of, depending on how they, you know, everyone complains. Right. But what's interesting is the the ones that realized that the reason why they were tough on you was not because they hated you. It's because they loved you so much. And that was yeah. a hard thing for people to understand. You're like, well, hold on. They're giving, they're, they're treating me like crap and we're doing all these stupid things. How can this be love? And I'm like, well, if this was the real world and we were really in and, you know, we were really like going through selection or whatever special operations thing, the more we sweat now, the less we're going to bleed when people are shooting at us. Right. Exactly. So the love is. I am preparing you to go against death, which again, this is the ultimate extreme business, business war analogies. I'm not a fan of because it's not life and death to a certain degree, but, but the, the thought process is the same. The more you sweat in the training and doing the hard stuff, the less you're going to bleed. It's all so true. Right. In, in, in the battle. And I just, once I realized that, because I mean, I wouldn't bitch moan, whatever, whatever, you know, I was a high school athlete. I can't, I could do all like, no, no, this is hard. Right. But, but again, it's like, it's an attitude shift, right? It's like, well, it could always be worse. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right. Then I guess we keep going, you know? I love that. I love that battlefield war analogy. The more, the more we sweat now, the less we bleed on the battlefield. And 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 you're right. It is, it is kind of an extreme way of, of, of phrasing it, but but business is the same way, you know, and it doesn't matter if you're dealing with, with issues on the team, you know, you've got, you've, you've got some HR related issues and you're kind of just hoping they get better. And you, you know, you hired the wrong person for this, for the certain role and you're kind of not doing anything about it. And you're, you're hoping that, that the problem goes away and you know, the, the, the not, not getting out in front of it, not dealing with it right then and there is gonna, means you're going to bleed later. And so, so many of these things are true when, when trying to get a business going. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, customer related issues, you know, what, what product decisions you're making or, or what team related decisions you're making. It's all true. And, and hope is not a strategy. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. And, and, and I think the other thing is, you know, when you have more experience at it, it doesn't mitigate the hard work. Right. I think you just work a little smarter and you kind right. of go, okay, well, I'm not going to do that. Like to your example, I think, which was really great. You wanted people to use your crappy app, quote unquote. You talk with them about how crappy it is. And then you get that feedback and you iterate. Okay. Well, now, like I'm sure if you ever started anything ever again, you'd be like, I got to get a hundred people to use this as fast as I humanly can. I got to spend as least amount of money on that. And I got to understand what they're going to pay for. And I'm just literally going to do that before I spend millions of dollars on something that no one wants. And exactly. I've learned this lesson the hard way multiple times. <laughs> so. I, I think everybody has to. Yeah. yeah. You know, even people that go through, you know, tech accelerators um, and this, this is all they beat into your head. Don't don't learn a lesson until they do it the hard way first and, and, and waste time building things that people don't want. And to your point, you know, once you've been through that pain, you know, you don't want to go through it again. And, and then you realize, OK. I'm going to get a hundred people that want to use this before I'm going to waste a decade of my life building it. And, and until you've experienced that, you don't really understand it. It's, 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 it's a weird thing. Um, and I, and I wish there was a quicker way to learn it, but I had to learn it the hard way too, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. I, there was this TV show about, 
up and coming rock stars. I don't even remember the name of it. It was on like VH1, you know, back in the day. I don't know. It was probably a decade ago or more. And uh, one of the guest musicians was Lemmy from Motorhead, right? Like, yeah. Lemmy, like, ah, how are you doing? You know, another cigarette, right? <laughs> I mean, this guy's a legend, right? I mean, the wisdom just, you know, percolating from him, right? And so the young bassist dude, you know, attractive guy along, you know, like, like, yeah, you're an attractive guy. You play bass. Okay. He goes, goes Lemmy. He's like, uh, what advice would you give me? And he's like, well, I really can't give you any advice. You're just going to have to make your own mistakes. Um, Cause that's the only way you're going to learn them. <laughs> that's it. That's the only advice. <laughs> and then I think he started he doing it. stuff. Yeah. I think the other thing he may have said is like, yeah, just don't drink so much. <laughs> Yeah, that is good advice. But I mean, you know, that's obvious. Like, yeah, you're a young rock star. What are you going to don't party too hard because you got you got a job to do. Right. Um, But it seems so simple. And with all of this issues with, you know, like 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 growth hack, et cetera, et cetera. Really, like. It's fundamentally going to be the same, even no matter what you do. I think the the experience and the wisdom is in, okay, you know, what are some of the things I'm going to try to get ahead of? To your point, like, let's get ahead of the curve. Once you've learned the, I've wasted all this time and money on something no one wants, literally the first thing you're going to do is let's figure out if they want this before I waste any time on it. And I'm curious with GreenPal, because what's interesting about what, what you've done here is I think it's applicable applicable to lots of other things that are in this sort of, I don't know what you would term it. I mean, lawn care space, it's like these tasks, these chores that have to be done. Grass always grows. Things always have. I mean, I'm just curious if there is some fundamental things about lawn care and what you've done at GreenPal that would expand to say like pool care or I don't know, like I'm just curious. What what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's it's uh I so a couple things there. When starting a new business, you know, building a new product, bringing a new product to the marketplace, I think it can be helpful to have some sort of unfair advantage, some sort of uh, uh specific knowledge that you know that most people don't know. And so for me, you know, I spent 15 years in the landscaping business. I kind of knew how it worked, how it worked inefficiently, where the gaps were, what consumers wanted, what they weren't getting, and 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 what how a product and a marketplace could solve those problems. So I kind of had an unfair advantage, and I also knew that we needed to build a specific tailored solution just for this one chore because at the time, there uh, Uber was 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 scaling and growing, and there was like a, a river of cash getting thrown at like Uber for X ideas. And everybody else was trying to solve the problem with, with uh, you know, one solution for everything home maintenance, and and they diluted themselves, and no, no, you know, it didn't really give you that Uber like experience. So, so what we learned, and and what I kind of already knew was that we had to have a vertical solution dedicated for this one chore, and it, and luckily we were able to sidestep a lot of the a lot of the mistakes that other companies were making. Um, so, so, you know, I knew that we didn't want to. Go chase other other verticals. I knew that we wanted to that the at the at the that the uh, opportunity in our industry was big enough that we didn't need to do that, and so I was able to avoid that mistake. But 
is there going to be an Uber for everything? You know, maybe, maybe not. Is there going to be a Hummer for Uber for home painting services and Uber for wet, you know, wedding photographers? You know, maybe, maybe not. Um, you know, what are some things that are, that are common uh, across all of these verticals that, that there are a lot of that, that the, that you can kind of like apply to other verticals. I think one of them, one, one lesson is start with the supply side first. And what I mean by that is build the tools that, they're going to need, build the tools that the plumber is going to need, build the tools that the roofing contractor is going to need, build the tools that the home cleaner is going to need. Start with that first, get them, uh, get, you know, make their life a little better. And then you can have them on the shelf, so to speak, for consumers to order them off, off, off the shelf, like an Amazon, like Uber, uh, and, and, or, or like an Instacart or Postmates. And so I think that's a mistake that a lot of, uh, of these kind of peer-to-peer marketplaces make is that they they start with the consumer first. They start with like, okay, well, we just make, need to make the best app for consumers, and and the suppliers are kind of these fungible commodities um, that 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 you know we can you know treat as such, and they don't solve the problems for the supply. And so then the supply doesn't hang around, and they're not there to order off the shelf uh, like, like like in an Uber situation. And so. That would be the, the one commonality that it doesn't matter if you're building for Uber for home cleaning, Uber for lawn care, Uber for plumbers. You should start with the supply first, solve the problems that that makes it suck to run a plumbing company. And then you have them on uh, a locked in, and on the shelf ready to go when the consumers want to hire them. Huh. Yeah, that that's uh, huh. that's interesting because. Uh... There was a there was a company I think it's still around called Online Sales Pro, and when I was talking to to him, I, his name escapes me. Which this is what happens when you have gray in the beard. <laughs> um, and but what was funny and well funny, what was interesting about what he was doing was that these businesses in the field that literally you can run the business on the phone, right? Right. Plumber, carpenter, right? You know all of these like. His his whole thing was, I can get you online. You can run everything from your phone, including calls or whatever. You can, you know, they they did landing page. So it was basically the Uber for everything. But it didn't have the 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 other the marketplace side. It was basically, I'm going to build this sort of generic quote unquote tool. My my words um, that will help those that run their business from their phone that are mostly in the field, mostly doing things like. Yeah, plumber, carpenter, electrician, you know, pool got pool maintenance, whatever. Um, and it's pretty, pretty, pretty cool. I mean, like it was like a very, it was an interesting way he did it. And I think that was the thing that he solved was unsucking what it was to run your business, right? Because again, yeah. they are running it from their phone. There's, there's no reason you couldn't run any one of these service businesses from your phone because they don't have a back office. They don't have an office manager. Most don't. They don't have somebody to, uh, to pick up, answer the phone uh, when you call into the office. They don't have a, a full-time bookkeeper. They don't have a, a sales manager or an estimator. It's all them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so if, you know, if you've spent, you know, a period in your life running that kind of business, you kind of know what these magical tools might look like and what you might like them to be. And and then you kind of already know, you know, that's how it's how you know I was able to start kind of on second base starting Green Pal. I kind of knew, you know, what what a landscape contractor needed, you know, to 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 like to like you said, operate their whole business in the truck. 
yeah. and not have to go back to the office to prepare an estimate, not have to go back to, you know, not have to pay an answering service and, and not have to have, you know, drive out to a client's house for a quote and things like that. Yeah. I think that's a good thesis. And, and I think that some other commonalities is the, the least sexy your business, the greater your chances of success. You know, n- nobody really wants to build solutions for the plumber. Nobody really wants to build a platform for the for the for the home cleaner uh, housekeeper to use. You know, these aren't glamorous businesses. And if you can start with a business that's not really glamorous that a whole lot of people aren't looking at right now, that means you have less competition for customers, it means you have less competition for distribution, less competition for uh investor dollars and and so I think uh I think the least uh uh glamorous your business, the greater your chances of success. Yeah, I mean, because those are the ones that are usually have got a pretty big pent up demand. Like people need them. I remember I I was in Atlanta for some investor thing we did with one of my players when I used to do this for players. And I met a young entrepreneur woman who uh, was telling us about her market, right? And it was funny because, you know, she's an African American woman. And she's like, yeah, you know, um, I'm in the uh, African-American woman hair products business. And I'm like, really? She's like, yeah, it's like, it's huge. It's mad. I mean, like, I was shocked at how big it was, right? That's that's how naive I am. You know, I'm a tall white guy with a beard. What do I know about African-American hair products? Exactly. <laughs> and and it was funny because we're talking and she's like, yeah, I can't get investment and da, 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 da. And I'm like, huh, but this is huge. This is like multi-billion dollar per year. I mean, like really like this is sizable. This is and it needed innovation and technology and the whole thing. And she's like, yeah. And she's like, you know, no, you know, she, she's pointed to me. It's like someone like you <laughs> is not going to get into this. And one would never be successful at it because you're not an African-American woman that has to deal with hair products. And I'm like, that's it. Exactly. Right? That's the thing that is so powerful when you like know the pain and know to your point, right? Like you were in the business, you knew these things. The best people to do that are the people that are, that, that are like in it, right? And it just really opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, you, you know, this whole building an entrepreneur community that's very diverse and like that knows these problems because those communities have got real needs. It has real money behind it. And there's real people there that really know how the hell's going on. Exactly. Independent of, you know, guys in Silicon Valley. What, what do we know? Right. And I just thought, okay, that's, that's, this job's for anyone. This is a really important thing. So authenticity is a competitive yeah. advantage. Absolutely. If you've lived it, you've experienced it, you know, the pain, then you know what, what solutions you need to bring to the marketplace to actually solve the pain. So many founders are building products in search of a problem. And that's, that's, a, that's a recipe to waste a decade of your life. You want to find the pain that, that is so painful that it's like your, your customer feels like a knife is stabbed in them and, and, and the pain and then the knife's twisted. It hurts so bad that they want to just use a crappy product to solve that pain. It has to be, it has to really be that strong of a pain point to solve. Otherwise, you, it's going to be like pushing a rock up a hill. And and unless you've lived it, experienced it, it's really hard to find that that product pain point solution. And uh, I love I love your example. I, I I was listening to an interview 
with a guy who founded a company called Slice, which is a marketplace for small pizzerias to, to sell pizza to people ordering on, on an app. And it's almost like, uh, like the Domino's app. You know, the Domino's app is great. You can yeah. order pizza and it's, you, know, you can see the progress. And he wanted to develop that same solution for small pizzerias, boutique pizzerias. And he actually grew up running a pizzeria. Uh, his family had a small little little pizza shop. And so he knew that business. So he knew how the platform needed to be built and architected. I think if, if you can find something you've spent time in your life in and you know the, the problems and solutions firsthand, I think it's going to increase your chances of success tenfold versus, you know, trying to catch a wave. You know, yeah. trying to catch, you know, it's like, oh, well, crypto's big or web or AI, you know, you're trying to catch a wave. Right. Like you said earlier, some people do get lucky doing that, yeah. but but it's it's one in a thousand. Yeah, it's it's a very low probability. I mean, you know, to your point about being in the industry, my friend Ravi, who founded mysutro.com, which is a reason why I'm, I got pool pool stuff on my mind is because it's a robot that floats in a pool and tests your pool water. Oh, cool. Which is automatic, whatever. But, you know, you talk with him about it and he's really passionate about protecting water and water is a great resource. And I'm like, yeah, but this is for pool stuff. He's like, yeah, I used to be a pool boy. <laughs> it's like I worked at my dad's shop in Southern California in Riverside and it was a pain in the butt. <laughs> Gone home with back pain from running that skimmer thing. Yeah. And, and like testing the water. I mean, yeah. He's had scallus, calluses on his, yeah. on his hands from that aluminum rod. Yeah. 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 And, and he built a robot to automate the testing because it was that painful for him. <laughs> That's how much that man hates cleaning pools. <laughs> <laughs> and testing water, right? He's got a degree in mechanical engineering to build this thing, right? But exactly. yeah, you're right. I mean, when he talks about it, you know, he, had a, he had a TEDx talk and all this whole thing. But when he like talks to a customer and they're like, well, why should I buy a Sutro? He's like, well, I used to be a pool boy. I know how painful this is. This is horrible. And he's, they're like, really? He's like, yeah. Worked for my dad's pool store customer, the whole thing. And it's just like, there's instant credibility to your point about right. you've walked the walk, right? You can talk the talk and you understand the pain at a level that is so visceral that you're like, this problem has to be solved. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that can really put you on second, second base and, uh, and getting the first base is the hardest part. So, so and do you have to go spend a decade in something to be a successful entrepreneur? No, but I think it helps. Well, that and I think the I think it's the blue collar work ethic, the hit get your hands dirty kind of thing. I remember, you know, some of the startups I was at, we couldn't pay, we couldn't afford to pay a cleaner. Well, so we'd all clean. I mean, you know, I was the founder <laughs> yeah. in the bathroom because right. We needed to save the money and someone had to clean the bathroom. And yeah. but it, but the humble, I think it's this. This idea, maybe this is it. I'd love your thoughts on this. I think it's the humbleness of doing the work that has to be done that is not sexy and that is not exciting and not fun. I, I think most of business and entrepreneurship is like 80% of this is not going to be quote unquote fun. You just gotta you gotta do the work. And the sooner you realize that doing the work means doing things that are not fun, that are that you may be quote unquote below you the quicker you're going to realize, yeah, this is the secret. It's, it's the willingness. Yeah. It's the willingness to kind of float around and do whatever it is you got to do at that stage of the game to get to the next level that 
I think separates the ones that make it the, from the ones that don't. One of my favorite video games growing up was Super Mario Kart. And on that video game, you had like five drivers. You had Toad, Princess, Bowser, Donkey Kong, Mario, and Luigi. And every driver in that game was was good at one thing. Like Toad was really good around the corners. Bowser had the highest top speed. Princess was the fastest accelerating. Um, and then you had Mario. And Mario was like half good at everything. He wasn't the best at top end. He wasn't the best around the curves. He wasn't the fastest off the line. But but he was pretty good at everything. And, and as you were just getting started, he was probably the better driver to learn how to play the game on. And I think in entrepreneurship, it, it can be helpful to be Mario. You got to be half good at marketing. You got to be good at, you got to be like the world's crappiest engineer, like, like I became. You got you to gotta be decent at copywriting and customer service and product design and, and bookkeeping and, and accounting. You got to be pretty good at about 20 or 30 different things. And you got to be willing to float around like block and tackling and shore up and, and, and dedicate like firepower to whatever the thing is that day or week that you're, you're trying to work on and make better. Because that's what's going to be required. And then you can build out an org around you to, to specialize in these things um, as you get bigger and as you grow, grow the company. But in the early days, it helps, I think, to be, be a generalist. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I mean, of course, you know, everyone brings their uniqueness to things, you know, like as an example, I have an engineering mind. So I'm more planning and methodical and systems and frameworks. I mean, that's just I, my, that's the way my brain thinks. Whereas others are more creative and can be a little more like, you know, kind of, I wouldn't say outside the box thinking, but, you know, to think about it in different ways. And I think you're right. Like, you got to be, I always say, you got to be a little dangerous in everything yeah. just to know like the right thing to do and not to do. Um, just like if you're going to, if you own a house, you should know a little bit about how to maintain it, even though you may not have to pull a roof off, but you should kind of know, yeah, they should probably put down some new decking. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is really, you know, like, are you sure about this? Like that's rotted out, right? That looks like rot to me, you know? You know what exactly. I mean? Know a little bit enough to be dangerous yet. I think again, to your to your point before about you know it's this humbleness it's the like you know maybe not spend a decade doing the thing but you should be willing to do the thing like you should be get your hands dirty get in the field like really understand the pain like i have a friend my friend troy he's always like no one will switch to your silly, crappy tool <laughs> unless the pain is like nine to 10 X worse. Like they just won't. Right. Like, don't dilute yourself. What problem is this really solving in a way that's just like throw money at it? Like take my money. I got it. This is the worst thing possible. And, you know, I, I say this for like marketing tools, which there's tens of thousands. I mean, there's probably over 10,000 silly marketing tools, right? But Again, it's what are people going to pay for? And they're going to pay for the to get rid of the pain. Exactly. Metaphor. I mean, not physical, obviously, but but yeah, I think it's just interesting. So so what is it about Green Pal? What what is what is the pain that you guys alleviate? Yeah, it's it you wouldn't think, but it actually is a pain in the butt to get somebody to, to come out and show up to mow your yard when they're supposed to. Uh, you wouldn't think it is, but it's actually like 
there's this weird case of the disappearing lawn guy. Like you hire somebody to come mow your yard on agreed price. And you probably had to call 10 different people, leave voicemails, exchange some text messages back and forth. Maybe you called 10 and two showed up to give you a quote. Maybe you hired one and they actually didn't show up. Or maybe they showed up one time and didn't, didn't show oh, up yeah. the following week. And like, for some reason this happens. And, and, and if you just want a basic grass cutting service, it's actually kind of a pain in the butt to get it. And that's the problem we solve for consumers. If you go, it's kind of like uh, the DoorDash experience, the, the Instacart experience, the Uber experience. That's what people expect now. And there's many things in life where you don't yet have that. And so it's our job to, to make that same DoorDash experience possible for basic landscaping maintenance. So on the consumer side, that's the problem we solve. On the supplier side, which is the more important side, running a lawn care service sucks. It's hard. It's hard to get new customers. It's hard to keep your your org- your, your route organized on the, the fastest like stop-by-stop route to run through town. It's hard to manage the schedule through weather delays and and all of the and or equipment failure, all these different things that cause your, your schedule to get all out of whack. And then the other thing, it's hard to get paid. It's hard to like get paid for the work you do. Uh, because you know, the lawn guy is like the the last person on the list of household bills to get paid. And so every lawn care service, you know, uh, guy or gal has accounts receivable that goes back 30, 60, 90, 120 days. And this is not a very high margin business. They don't have the cash flow to, 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 to sustain that. And so there's about a half dozen different main pain points that we first saw for the lawn care service, making their life a little bit better, making their business easier to run. That then is, enables homeowners to then hire them at, at a touch of a button. So we have to be good at both. And and the other the way we've gotten here is just by focusing on this one use case. You know, if you spend five or six thousand dollars a year maintaining your home's landscaping, you know, you probably get pretty good white glove service from your your grass cutting guy. Um, but if you only spend a hundred dollars a month. You know, you may not get a phone call back. You, they may not show up. They may go out of business. And so that 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 basic use case, the person is spending a hundred, maybe two hundred dollars a month, is really our bread and butter. And, and we've built a platform with hundreds of thousands of these people that just need this basic service done, but don't want to go through the pain in the butt of, of calling around, leaving voicemails, and wrangling the lawn care service every week. It's almost like a like a Uber like DoorDash like experience for them. And then making it profitable for, for for vendors to service hundreds of these and make a living doing it. Yeah. I mean, clearly the supply and demand side is important. You know, I think the way we learned this, going back to our early conversation, <laughs> when when we started, you know, here I, I'm just getting off selling my 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 landscaping business. I'm feeling all all proud and high and mighty and and uh we we then we go to build the Uber for lawn care. Spent eight months building this thing, and we crickets, no customers. And so we had to we had to hustle up our first hundred or thousand customers. And the way we did that is we passed out door hangers all over Nashville, Tennessee. And so the first thing you know, I'm taking intuition out of out of the playbook of running a landscaping business. We went to the higher end parts of town. Your $750 million, $2 million homes, because we're thinking these people have discretionary income. They want to hire a gardening service or a landscaping service. They'll try a new piece of technology. We must have passed out 10, 20,000 of these things and, and, and got virtually no signups. And out of desperation, 
because we ran out of door st- door st- uh, uh, doors to hang flyers on, we went to the uh, emerging parts of town, the, the working class parts of town, uh, maybe $100,000 homes, $200,000 homes, and, and flyered them. And we started getting signups, 10 a day, 20 a day, sometimes as many 100 a day. If we passed out 1,000, we might you know, get, get 50 in that day. And we started noticing the, the, the more working class parts of town wanted the product more because their lawn lawn care guy wouldn't return their phone call because they weren't spending the big bucks. So that's how we learned we need to solve this person's pain point. That's actually our customer. And the high end part of the market may may come come to use it eventually, but that low end part of the market is who we need to solve the problem for. Wow. That's uh, pretty good advice. Don't don't throw out 10,000 uh, hangers. <laughs> we would never have figured that out had we not done the things that don't scale. Yeah. Started passing out door hangers. So it was what we had to do. We don't pass yeah. out door hangers anymore, but right. it was what we had to do at that stage of the game yeah. to get a couple of hundred or a thousand people to try it out. Wow. Well, Brian, such a great conversation. Really appreciate your your time, your insights really important again to, to to really think through if you as, an, as a young entrepreneur or any kind of entrepreneur about this blue collar work ethic and to your point good good if you're in the game for a little while to figure it out but don't be afraid to roll your sleeves up and get dirty exactly <laughs> i like that advice all right appreciate your time thanks a lot thank you i enjoyed it Thanks, Brian, for the awesome interview. Super interesting about all of these different types of businesses that are not necessarily technical, but huge, massive needs. So as promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Brian. Having experience working in the field you're trying to serve can give you an edge in helping you understand the problems you're helping to solve. Don't discount the experience of blue-collar work. Yeah, you know me. I'm a big fan of the blue-collar work ethic, big fan of getting your hands dirty, big fan of finding businesses that are like a need, a huge need that people um, will have no matter what the economy looks like. So um, this really resonates with me. So if you're one of those folks too, you know, ask some questions like what sector of the economy needs some help in technology enhancement? What are some of the things that you re- just see that are like recession proof that people always need, you know, garbage, water, sewer, lo- mowing their lawn, etc. So just sort of think about those kind of things. The quote unquote, the least sexy your business, the greater your chances of success, Brian says, because there is a lot less competition in fields like plumbing and contracting, right? If you find the right problems and the right solutions, you actually have a shot. And it is interesting because not a lot of uh, technology companies actually go and work on those sort of least sexy, less sexy kind of blue collar stuff. I mean, they're starting to do that now. They did that with taxis, right? Uber is probably the best example of that. But there's just not a lot of focus on that. So I would say, again, ask yourself some questions like, what are some industries that just don't get a lot of tech love? Or is there a way you can help them do better, right? I think that's one of the most important things. Make them more efficient. Make their margins bigger, right? Because a lot of these blue-collar you know, service jobs are tough, man. They're competitive, and it's just really hard to like make, make ends meet, but people do it all the time. 
You need to be willing to do whatever it takes early on, and you'll need to be a generalist until you can build up an infrastructure of people around you. Getting good enough in areas like marketing, sales, and other basics of running a business. So now you need to know a little bit about everything being an entrepreneur. I always say I got I know enough to be dangerous, <laughs> not a, obviously an expert on a ton of different things, but you need to know what you don't know and then go figure out how you can bridge the gap. So you know, do a skills assessment, figure out if there's people that you can use and tap into to like actually help build your business, but don't be afraid of that. So there you have it. The actionable insights I learned from my interview with Brian. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the entrepreneur ethos podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learn something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better.